That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. I mean, no one plans to get sick. And yet, here we are. My name is Matthew Zachary. I survived cancer, a stroke, and COVID-19. And somehow, I'm still here. I also survived our stupid broken healthcare system, and I want to help you survive it too. So let's go make healthcare suck less together. Because you know what? We're all out of patience. Hey, that's the name of the show. Hello, friends. Welcome back to the show. A quick reminder before we get started, if you like the show, I hope you do, and you're on Apple Podcasts, Please leave me a rating, a review, a star, just a star. That's all I ask for. Are there stars? I think they're stars. Anyway, today on the show, I welcome an extraordinary young woman. Grace Weather is a living, breathing unicorn of talent and intelligence. Guitarist, pianist, trapeze artist, figure skater, model, author, TED speaker, and a six-year survivor of an inoperable brainstem glioma that she was diagnosed with at 13 years old in 2015. Grace is the author of You're So Lucky and a new docuseries called You're So Lucky, the next chapter on YouTube. She joins me now to talk about her story and what it's like to have your whole life interrupted at such a young age. We also compare notes against her experiences in the 2010s versus my eerily similar experiences in the 1990s. Spoiler alert, we've come pretty far, but we've got a long way to go. Enjoy the show. Grace Weather, thank you so much for coming in out of patience. I've been following your career. I'm very impressed and very inspired by what you've chosen to do with your life before and after bad things happen to you, but it's a pleasure to have you here on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So three words people don't wake up and hope to hear one day, brainstem glioma, lots of syllables there, clearly mm -hmm. not something you were ready to be hearing at the age of 13 with your parents, but I do want to focus first on what we have in common as brain people, which is this grotesque degree of being misdiagnosed and ignored. Can you talk us through the comedy of terrors that led up to you actually being told there's actually something wrong with you? Yeah, I think I think that's definitely a common topic of discussion among a lot of different cancer patients and especially brain tumor patients. I was 13 years old when I started getting sick and tired. My mom took me to pediatrician after pediatrician who told me I was making it up for attention. I was depressed. I was just a teenager. I heard every single thing in the book. Uh, one day my mom thought that I might have mono. So she took me to the emergency room where they did blood work. They found out I didn't have mono, but my red and white blood cell counts were very far off. So I ended up in the hematology and oncology department for leukemia, 
Uh, they found out there I did not have leukemia, but I would spend six months as a patient there trying to figure out why I had these really weird blood markers, which all led up to January 9th of 2015, when after uh, about a year of going to doctors, I was finally diagnosed with a brainstem glioma. So it was definitely a long fight even to just get that MRI, even though I complained of headaches all of the time. And unfortunately, this is not an uncommon topic that I hear from a lot of my friends who also have similar backgrounds and stories. My brain cancer surgery was supposed to be on January 9th, 1996. Really? Uh, yeah, it was the 10th because there was a giant blizzard that destroyed the planet. So <laughs> second day, but you said January 9th, and that is a very resonant date in, in my history. So let's talk more about the so you have leukemia, and that was still a misdiagnosis. Did that just mm -hmm. scare the shit out of you? Did, I mean, no one knows what leukemia doesn't mean cancer. I mean, it does, but it doesn't sound evil. Yeah. I mean, my whole family, we didn't know how to really react. I, I wasn't a sick kid growing up, so it was really the first time I'd ever been in the hospital. So I always say that that whole experience, I think, was a lot scarier than the final diagnosis of a brain tumor. To be honest, when we finally got that diagnosis of a brain tumor, we were actually pretty happy at that point because it was a reason for all of this, you know, suffering that we had gone through over the past year. It was like, thank God we finally know what's wrong. So yeah, I would definitely say that original trip to the hematology, the blood cancer department was probably a lot worse than January 9th. I mean, I had the same experience. Like it's, it's astonishing. Like here you were treated like 20 years after I was treated and we had virtually the same experience. They finally were able to look inside my brain with an MRI, which back then was like, Ooh, MRI. We're like, we had no <laughs> fancy space tech. Right. And there's like, there's a mass in your brain. And I said, thank God it's something. Yeah. You had the same feeling. Yep. It was it was a reason because I think a lot of the doc I had been getting told for so long that I need to go on antidepressants and that I was just being moody. And I was like, no, you don't understand there. There is something happening, but I just can't express to you what it is because I'm not a doctor and I don't know medical terms. I'm very lucky that I know myself and that industry a lot better now that I've been a patient for six years. But it took my mom literally like yelling at these doctors being like, no, there's something wrong with my child. This is not this is not her. It took that much, you know, advocating for ourselves and for our family to even get in the room and get these doctors to listen to us. And I've had heard so many stories of people who it was passed off as eating disorders. It was passed off as like migraines and concussions. I know one girl where the doctor said to her to her face, he said, if this is a brain tumor, I will quit my job because I'm just like, I'm not a real doctor if this is a brain tumor. She goes into the MRI hour later. He has to come in and apologize. He's like, you have a brain tumor. So it is, it's definitely an ongoing struggle to be a patient and not really know exactly how to navigate the medical field. But yeah, that diagnosis was, uh, it, was a, it was almost like an ending point for our family of that medical journey. Did you have t-shirts printed that said, yes, it was all in my head? <laughs> we did not, but that would have been a fun idea. My goodness. Yeah. So you were 13. <laughs> I, I assume that's middle school where yep, you grew up. Grade. So I would imagine getting diagnosed with a brain tumor in seventh grade in 2015 would hopefully be different from a stigma perspective than getting diagnosed in seventh grade in the 1990s. How did your class react? Or was this something that was still kind of hush or what's wrong with Grace? Um, I think I had a lot of different experiences. 
uh, it's definitely not like the movies. Um, I felt a little ripped off. I was like, come on, where's my like perfect story? But I found when I was diagnosed at first, there was definitely like an outpour of love and support as you would hope that there is for your family. Um, but I found as I started going more and more into my journey, I actually ended up receiving a lot of backlash, which was not something that I was expecting as a 13 year old who was already pretty self-conscious. Um, and I started getting bullied online and on Instagram and ended up having to shut down my social media accounts because of the comments and the messages I was getting from my old classmates and from people that I didn't even know, um, saying the craziest of things. Like, I hope you die. I hope the brain tumor kills you. Just like the most insane things. Um, so I always say along with the brain tumor fight was this whole other aspect of having to reevaluate my life and this new, you know, things that came with being a brain tumor patient. Um, and I've heard from a lot of kids whenever I talk to them, you know, patients of all different ages, they always say that they lose their friends, which is not something that you expect is going to happen. Um, I definitely didn't think I was going to lose most of my friends through this experience, but everyone, you know, handles it in their own way. And unfortunately, I had to find who my true friends were and just, you know, go to the people that I knew I could have that would have my back and support me through everything. So it's definitely a process and I'm I'm still learning to this day. <laughs> I want to get back to social media in a moment, but I do want to focus on the fact that you are a relatively, I'm going to say abnormal in the best sense fearless child. Thanks. (laughs) And people can go online and find all about how you joined the circus at nine years old. Yeah. You were a fearless young woman. And then you're confronted with mortality. Did being fearless come in handy or did it like soften the blow of having fear? You remember? I, I would say, to be honest, I don't really remember everything. That whole six months is kind of a blur. When I was diagnosed, I was told that there was nothing medically that could be done to treat my type of tumor. And I was given an 8% chance of survival for six months. Um, So I was kind of living with this mindset of if I only had six months left, how was I going to make every single day better than the last and make sure I'm doing what I love every single day? So within those six months, I was kind of living in this mindset of like, okay, nothing really matters. So I might as well do whatever I want. And that led me on some pretty crazy adventures. But so I'm I'm not sure if it was a lack of fear. I think I still had fear. And I think I still had fear back when I was performing in the circus as well. But I I think it was the want to achieve something like else overpowered any fear that I may have had. So like in the circus, they always taught us, they're like, it's afraid to be like, it's okay to be afraid that you're like 30 feet in the air. But the want of perfecting the trick was always bigger than that fear. So we we just did it. And so I feel like it was kind of the same way here. I, I, I was definitely still afraid. I was 13. And I was told that I had six months to live. But my want to live my life to the best of my ability was bigger. You are me incarnate because I was also given six months <laughs> to live. I swear, like literally, that was like at your crazy. And I was just about to graduate from college, and like they're like, "Up, oh, mm. too bad. Sorry about that." At the yeah. You know, one thing we also have in common is uh, I'm a pianist. You're a pianist, and again, it's it's your brain, right? It's like you can't see inside yeah. it. It's freaky. It's not like a cancer on your skin or in your breasts or to stay it's like in your head you know you can't (laughs) control it like this thing this alien is living in your brain did you have any neurological side effects because i do want to explain to the listeners that you know the brainstem that's like way 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 in your brain 
That's not like your yeah. outer brain. That's like the core of the earth brain, right? Yeah. What what was what what happened there? Uh, so the brainstem is pretty much the deepest part of the brain. It's connected to the top of your spinal cord, and it's in charge mainly of bodily functions that are more related to like the actual movement and function of your body. So it controls your swallowing, your muscles in your face, your heart, things like that, your lungs. So for me, I noticed I was having a really hard time swallowing and I would have these like fits or like attacks where I couldn't breathe. I would keep breathing in, but my body couldn't release my vocal cords to breathe out. And that was something that I really noticed in the beginning. And we didn't realize until after I was diagnosed that that was the reasoning for that. Um, so it's not necessarily neurological issues that come along with brainstem gliomas, more like body functions, like the one side of my face droops a little more than the other side when my inflammation is really high. Um, but I definitely contribute, you know, piano and guitar and those tasks that strengthen your brain to being at where I am neurologically. So just kind of have to balance it out by they always say it's like physical therapy for your for your head. No, agreed. My tumor was in my cerebellum. We're giving everybody like a brain biology lesson on this <laughs> on this interview today. So the cerebellum is the structure below the brain. It's technically part of the brain, but it abuts mm -hmm. the brain stem. So mine yeah. was in the cerebellum. Yours was in the brain stem. Those are parts mm -hmm. of your brain that control things, as you pointed out, that you have no control over, like breathing yeah. and your endocrine system, it, there's no thoughts there. And they're going in with all these, you know, spoons and knives and whatever to cut these things out. So they go in your head with all these, you know, spoons and knives usually. You didn't have surgery. What was your protocol? Yeah, so I was sat down the day I was diagnosed and I was told that my tumor was inoperable, which already made it very difficult to treat. And then on top of that, uh, chemotherapy and radiation would also have a very, very small percentage of working because it was inside the blood-brain barrier. So I was told that day that there was nothing in traditional medicine that could help me at that time and was sent home with no next steps, which for my family was probably the worst part of the whole experience is usually like when you, you expect to be diagnosed with any form of illness and be given some you know, next step or some answer. And I was sent home with drink Gatorade when you pass out or have seizures because I was having those multiple times a day at that point. Um, so I was sent home and was put on a wait and watch protocol. So I actually say it's really weird how I was saying earlier, the diagnosis was kind of the end of my medical journey. That was the day I went home and I would only come back for checkups. Um, so I was put on wait and watch and I still get MRIs every three to six months now. Um, but they're starting to develop um, more and more trials and treatments that are hopefully going to work on these types of tumors in the future. So that's something that we'll probably look into within the next couple of years, things like CAR-T, ONC-201. Um, but I've not had any traditional treatment, just treatments to treat the symptoms that are from the tumor at this time. You just use a lot of sciencey jargon that I understand. Yeah. <laughs> but so, so I'll I'll allow you to Wikipedia yourself. By the way, you have a Wikipedia page. But what is CAR T cell? <laughs> you said a lot of cellular genetic stuff there. Explain to the listeners. Yeah. So, um, basically, unfortunately, tumors in the brainstem have not the best percentages, um, especially in pediatrics. So, my tumor is um, they they haven't biopsied it, but it's most relatable to a tumor called DIPG 
And these type of tumors usually have a less than 1% survival rate for five years. Um, and I've been lucky enough to get to know a lot of kids who are currently fighting this um, when we were in Washington, D.C., fighting on Capitol Hill for DIPG awareness. And basically, a lot of these kids who are further along in their cancer journey, they've been going to treatments all over the country. I think like Stanford's the main one right now. But CAR T cells are cells that do go into the blood brain barrier and they're seeing success on brainstem gliomas with this, you know, new therapy that will hopefully be able to help these type of tumors, um, as well as ONC201, which is a new drug that is also going into the blood brain barrier. So these type of tumors, the treatment for them has not improved significantly since Neil Armstrong's daughter, Karen, died of this in like the 60s. And she died of the same type of tumor. So our hope is that we'll start to see some real advancements in these brainstem tumors and start getting some, you know, traditional medical treatment for them to help these kids. Back with our guest after the break. All right, Grace, picking up where we left off, it's clear you've had an edification of science that you possibly didn't expect to have, and you do speak quite eloquently. I want to get to how you're now imparting that downstream to communities and other patients, but I can't help but want to go back to the fact that I had such a benefit of having no internet when I was diagnosed in mm-hmm. we had like AOL CDs. That was all we had <laughs> in the 1990s. But here you are telling me this tragic story of friends hating on you. And, you know, I lost friends in the old school way. They just stopped talking to me, right? The, mm-hmm. the house phone stopped ringing. That's all we had. But you're living in an age now, 2015, all these years later, you are the internet generation that had this situation. Help me understand how the internet helped and hurt because you're going to have this spectrum of support or not support. And I'm terrified by it, but encouraged by it. <laughs> yeah, I think I think you nailed it. it. It's the best thing and the worst thing at the exact same time. I think for me at the beginning of my journey, it was obviously the source of a lot of pain and, you know, issues in the beginning of my experience. But as I realized that other people's opinions don't matter, which is still, a, it's a lifelong battle to remember that. But um, I used the internet to start finding people that would understand. I was like, okay, I need to make friends that, you know, it was hard. You're 13, your friends want to go out, they want to, you know, hang out. And when you are fighting something like this, there's headaches, there's seizures. Sometimes you're just tired and you don't want to talk to anyone. And so I think I was like, okay, I need to find people that will understand then. If I need new friends, who will get it? And I was like, it's going to be other kids who have been through similar situations. So I turned to the internet. And I think when I started this, I literally just searched like hashtag brain tumor. It was that simple. And through that, you know, day long search of finding new people, we started to build a community all over the world of people that truly understand what we're going through. And that's why I love, you know, 
people like that you that do things that you do to help foster that community because if you look in the wrong place the internet can be a very difficult thing I'm, I'm also in a career in entertainment that brings its own you know things on the internet as well and so i think just making sure that we can use social media for good and to connect with people that we have a lot in common with i think it it's hard but it's definitely an amazing amazing tool if it's used correctly Right. With great power comes great responsibility. Good old Spider-Man yes. coming right at you. <laughs> so I was I was involved indirectly and sort of directly with the movie 50-50, which came out in 2012 before you were diagnosed. And I love that you commented before earlier on the show that, hey, this isn't what it looks like on film and television. That's pretty cancer, right? And mm -hmm. that's pretty tumors. That's pretty things that are going through to the extent that, you know, most people don't have Anna Kendrick as their social worker, which, you know, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's <laughs> character did in 50-50. In what was your care team like as far as over the last six years? You say you keep going in. Your parents, I'm sure, are endlessly supportive and probably endlessly freaking out as my parents were and probably still are 25 years later. Where are you getting your key support from? Because you mentioned, you know, you lost some friends. The flour sifts to get a little, little finer, finer grain. What's your ecosystem like these days? Yeah, I, I always say that the number one reason I'm ever okay is my mom. Um, it's it's just me and her. She's a single mom. She's absolutely incredible. Um, she has, from the beginning, been very supportive on the mental side of this journey, which was really important for me. She's she's a lawyer by day and a yoga teacher by night, which is just like the best combo. Very strange, but having her be on, you know, so left-brained and right-brained at the same time. I remember when I first got sick, she was the one who sat me down and was like, okay, well, we have no control over the fact that this happened to us, but we're going to play the cards that we've been dealt. Um, and so to have her kind of as like my conscience outside of myself has been absolutely wonderful. She's still like my full-time life manager. <laughs> um, but I think for me, I always say that my career and my art was like a person in my support system. That sounds really strange, but it was something outside myself that I could focus my time on that didn't put me into a sick mentality. Um, for me, that was something that was really big as someone who, you know, most of the times woke up and just felt gross and tired and sick all the time making sure that I had something that got me out of bed was like number one. And for me, that was my art and it was my career. And I moved to LA shortly after I was diagnosed and started pursuing those things to the fullest of my ability. Um, and so I, I always say it was like my mom, me and my career. And that's what got me through those really dark six months. And now I'm able to have more friends and hang out and do normal things as well. <laughs> so I want to talk about the advanced maturity that I see a lot in, in all of my advocacy work, myself included, when you're diagnosed with anything uh, traumatic to that extent, cancer, tumors, rare disease at a younger age, you tend mm -hmm. to accelerate in growth mentally more quickly yeah. than your friends and your peers. And, you know, you're here you are, you know, I think you're turning 20 this year, correct? Yeah, in September. That's extraordinary. So happy advanced birthday. <laughs> Thanks. You know, but... Talk about how that advanced maturity accelerated the way that you were able to kind of henpeck what your peer-to-peer -peer would look like and who fell off the wayside. Yeah, I, I think 100% all the people that I've met who have been through this do have just like, I always say it's a different perspective of the world. All those things that we think are so important, like 
for me, it was like a math test or who was fighting with who or like what outfit am I wearing? For? Like it was all these things that I woke up that day and I was like, OK, none of that really matters. And I think having the mentality makes it really hard to connect with your peers. And especially you see a lot of things that most young people should never and will never see. Um, so that maturity comes along with that responsibility, I think, as well. I've always kind of had a hard time connecting to peers my age. That's just kind of always how it's been. Even before this diagnosis, I was a very weird kid pursuing hobbies that no one else wanted to pursue. But I think for me, that maturity, it really supported me through what I started doing in my career and after, you know, this period of those six months because it allowed me to have that different perspective on life and do things that I felt would actually help others, not just myself, which I think is a really weird way for like a 13 year old to think even looking back at it now. Um, but I found that I started slowly making friends who understood what I was going through and would support me when I was sick. I think that was the biggest thing, like having people who understood like a text that was like, Hey, I don't think I can do this today. I have a headache. And them receiving that well, you you think most people would, but that's not always the case, especially with teenagers. Um, so I started making friends again, and I I realized that most of them had had that moment, that aha moment for themselves as well. Um, it was a total accident, but like my best friends, one has cystic fibrosis, one has gastroparesis, you know, and it can be anything from like a divorce to a family death to an accident, like anything. But I find that these kids have this switched perspective that I find that I also have. And so that's kind of how I'm able to live my life and have the support system of people who truly get it is because they've had that moment for themselves as well. I've heard that referred to as an advanced degree and shit happens. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I want to focus on your art. That's your anchor. That's my anchor. I really relate to how you're sticking to your creative process in the wake of having gone through all this traumatic experiences. You chose to write a book, and what I love about your book, You're So Lucky, is that perfect sort of sardonic, satirical wit on making mm -hmm. fun of the things that are awkward when people say, but you look great. How are you feeling? Yeah. Oh, you're so lucky. So obviously that's a fantastic tongue-in-cheek, but why a book? And now there's a docuseries that's tangential to the book. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm so glad you understood that reference because most of the time when people ask me when they don't get it, I'm like, oh, you, you must not be a survivor because this is something that we get told every single day. Um, I started the book off with this paragraph. It's like when people I tell people that I have a brain tumor, the first thing they say is, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. And then they say, but you're so lucky. And I thought that was always so interesting because I, I didn't know if I considered myself lucky. And it's like, would you have considered me lucky when I was told that I had six months to live? Like, I, I just had this weird relationship with this saying that strangers would tell me on a daily basis. Um, so I had been playing with this idea of luck and writing this book, You're So Lucky. And I, I wrote as much as I could. But every time I read it, it felt like there was something missing um, because I knew that this book would go wider than just the brain tumor audience. I hoped that it would help brain tumor patients, but I knew it would go to people who were not familiar with brain tumors as well. And I thought my perspective was very one-sided, um, especially because I hadn't had more traditional treatments like surgery or chemotherapy. Um, and I was also kind of on the other side of things at this point. So I felt I had a very, you know, positive outlook on things, which is not always how we feel and the case in most situations. 
Um, and so I was talking about earlier how I searched hashtag brain tumor on Instagram. And I was starting to find these people all over the world who had similar situations to me. And then it just kind of clicked. I was like, I need to have the stories of more than just myself. Um, so I searched hashtag brain tumor on Instagram again, as simple as it may sound. And I started finding people and we put together this group of 15 people who all had, you know, different but similar brain tumor stories and wrote from their perspective of what this illness meant to them. I think I had been just wanting to write a book since I was very young. The book started when I was 14 or 15. And it was totally just like, I call them bedroom projects. Like I was just sitting in my room by myself and I was like, I'm going to write a book. Not thinking that I would ever finish one or it would ever be on a shelf. But then it came out and I was able to, you know, educate people about this illness. Cause I think a lot of people just don't know until it affects your family personally. Um, and then this year we had the opportunity to adapt it into a docuseries, which was very, very fun for me as a film fan. Just absolutely extraordinary. Uh, so if you're not aware, Grace, I want to make you aware and our listeners who know this because I mentioned this like endlessly in my show. Your book, your tone reminds me very much of another friend of mine who was a young adult cancer survivor. Um, her name is Emily McDowell, and she created a greeting card company in the same vein of, but you don't look sick. And she's got cards that say, if this is in God's plan, he's a really bad planner. <laughs> or allow me to punch anyone in the face that tells you everything happens for a reason. Anyway, you could look her up at Emily McDowell Studios, but her tone, you remind me of her tone. It's that perfect, people don't know how to respond when you say bad things. Yeah. I'm 25 years out of my cancer, and I still see aunts and uncles and friends every now and then, how are you doing? How's everything? You look great, right? People don't yeah. know. Is it fair to expect them <laughs> to do anything different? My question to you. To be honest, I'm going to say no. And I would not have said that before because I was like, why are all these people treating me like this? Like, I remember being 13 and being like, oh, my God, this is so annoying. After like day three of going into this, like, how are you thing? But I've noticed myself that sometimes even I don't know what to say when other people confront me with their stories. Um, I, I don't know if we'll ever find that perfect language because I don't think we can ever put ourselves in the shoes of someone else, especially while they're going through it at that moment. I think even I'm sometimes not the best judge of what someone's going through because I'm, I'm five years out from my diagnosis. You know, I was saying earlier, sometimes I can't even really remember what happened. And so I think I, while I would love to be optimistic and hope that everyone can understand and be sympathetic in, you know, an authentic way, I, I don't think that's always possible because it's impossible to fully understand what someone's going through. Um, I, I always say, though, that I, I try to live my life thinking in that perspective, which is what I think we can do, like thinking in the perspective of other people are going through something, whether they choose to share it or not. So all we can do is be a nice human ourselves and hope that that rubs off on the people that we interact with on a daily basis. Cause I, I always like, I don't look like somebody who has a brain tumor. If I was walking down the street, no one would come up to me and be like, Oh, you have a brain tumor, you know? And so I think that I always say that cashier is going through something. That person yelling at someone at the mall is going through something. And so I think if we can just be positive in ourselves, 
hopefully we can spread that um, as cliche as it sounds. But no, I, I don't have an answer for what the perfect thing to say is to someone who's just been diagnosed. Um, I think it's just I wish that awkwardness could go away, but I'm not I'm not sure if it will. But I love the idea of the cards. That's that's a good icebreaker. <laughs> Definitely. The docuseries is You're So Lucky, the next chapter. Grace, where can listeners learn more? Um, it is available on Gray Entertainment's YouTube channel. That's the easiest way to watch, I think, if you guys just want to see it right now. Um, there's an ebook version with interview transcripts on Amazon. Um, and then Gray Inc. is the production company. So there's more on their website. There's a Spotify experience. Um, I'm a huge music fan. So if you don't want to watch a show or listen to me talk about myself for four hours, you can just listen to the playlist and you'll get the same emotion. So it's a lot of fun. But um, yeah, great entertainment. Before we go, I understand that you do some voiceover work. Give me your best Brooklyn accent. Oh, my gosh. Wait. Okay, I'm not prepared for this. Brooklyn. I read that Hmm. you do a Brooklyn accent. I do a Brooklyn. You read that on the internet. There's a lot of things on the internet. I don't know if I do. I've never done a Brooklyn. It's like, hey, I'm walking here. Is that Brooklyn? <laughs> <laughs> Is give that you, considered Brooklyn? I'll give you a million. Go practice your Brooklyn accent. I'll help you. I promise. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay. I got to get better on this voiceover stuff. I'm not very good at this. No, we're, 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 we're BFFs now. We got way too many things in common. It's extraordinary. I can't thank you enough for sharing your story, coming on the show. Way more to come for you. Your future is extraordinarily bright. I'm here to support you however I can. Grace Weather, not spelled like the atmosphere. W-E-T-H-O-R, Grace Weather. All the things, I can't even outro you because there's so many things to outro you with, but extraordinary human being. Thank you. Tons of details in the episode description. Best of luck to you. Godspeed. Thank you so much for having me and for giving a platform to people who have gone through this. I think it's it's the number one step towards making sure we can have this community all together. So thank you, too. That's all for today, folks. If you like today's show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is a product of Offscript Media. Our executive producer is Matthew Zachary. Our senior producers are Brianna Seeley, Jen Orange, and Andrew McDowell. It is mixed and edited by Brianna Seeley. Our theme music is by the Mike Van Allen Quintet and by Mara. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. Hit us up at contact at offscript.com to share comments, feedback, and make recommendations. For more information, visit offscript.com.